Hello there, I'm Geoffrey Wyatt, one of the team here at Sydney Observatory, part of the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. I'm going to talk to you about what's visible in the sky for the month of September. Originally, September was the seventh month. After all, the Latin term septum means seven. When January and February were added and the order rearranged, it became the ninth month that we have now. What we're going to do is a tour of the night sky, so of course you'll need some provisions. Somewhere warm to sit, a blanket perhaps, a cup of coffee, or if you're old enough, a glass of red wine to assist your imagination. One of the most important things that you can have with you is your printable star map that you can download from our website at www.maz.museum. I want you to find a high position so that you can see as much of the horizon as you possibly can in all four cardinal directions. That's right, north, east, south and west. If you're up against your neighbour's tree or house, then of course you're going to lose some of the view. But some of us just can't help that. So make do with what you've got, but if you can, a clear view in all directions will make all the difference. Wait for sunset, and then a little bit more until it's nice and dark, perhaps an hour or so after sunset. Look up, and what do you see? Clouds? Possibly. Stars? Hopefully. For some, who are travellers, the stars are guides. For others, they are no more than little lights in the sky. And I want us all to be travellers together. And we shall begin by looking toward the western horizon. From there, go straight up to about 60 degrees. Yes, that's right, I'm sure you've heard me talk about this before. 60 degrees, how can you measure that? Most of us can estimate 90 degrees, or straight up. Most of us can also do halfway, 45 degrees. But 60 degrees? A handy way of measuring what you can see in the sky is to hold your hand at arm's length. If you clench your fist, that will be about 10 degrees. If you hold out your pinky, that will be about one degree or twice the size of the full moon. If you spread your hand from pinky tip to thumb tip, that is about 20 degrees. Our first point, due west where the sun has gone down, is about 75 degrees up. So that's just under four hand spans. As we go up, we bypass the very famous group of stars called Libra, which I'm sure you've heard of, but it's not well positioned at this time of year. The first bright star you come to is the third of, though it's quite archaic, four royal stars. It is a bright star that used to measure one of the four important points in the sky, the solstice and the equinoxes. This was done thousands of years ago from Mesopotamia, the wonderful cradle of civilization between the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. It is the 15th brightest star in the night sky. It's a red supergiant, which means, of course, it's a pretty big star. It's about 15 times the mass of the sun, 800 times the diameter of the sun, and 600 light years away. 
It is Antares. It is the brightest star in the group of stars or constellation that we call Scorpius. A light year is the distance that light travels in a year in the vacuum of space. It's a long way. For those of you who like mathematics, it's 10 to the power of 16 metres. For those of you that like kilometres, it's roughly 9,500 billion kilometres. It's not a convenient way of thinking about it, to be honest, so we just tend to use light year. You're seeing this star as it was about 600 years ago. You're looking back in time. Antares. Its name came about because every now and then, roughly every 800 days or thereabouts, the planet Mars wanders fairly close by. The Greek name for Mars was Ares. As Ares, god of war, would go past this fairly bright reddish star, they looked similar. This star was called the rival of Mars, Anti-Ares Antares. As I mentioned, this star was one of four what we call royal stars, which were markers in the sky. They were bright stars near significant points that traced the movement of the sun through the sky, the equinoxes and the solstice. None of the stars do so now because the Earth does a rather slow 26,000 year wobble on its axis, which we call the precession of the equinoxes. It has the effect of moving the four points against the background stars. Antares, therefore, used to mark a position in the sky known as the autumnal equinox, but not now. It will again in around another 20,000 years. But who cares? We're not going to be around for that. When you look up into the night sky, you might be able to see around two to 3,000 objects, depending on your age and your eyesight. The vast majority are stars. It's very hard to remember which one is which unless you have a memory aid, something to help you. A dot-to-dot -dot picture with a good story behind it is a fairly handy way of doing it. To the ancients, the area of the sky that we're looking at now appeared to be a small but nasty animal, and Teres marks its heart. There's a star on either side which should make up the body. If you go down a little bit toward the west, there's a perpendicular line of stars which will be the head and the claws on either side. Claws, head in the middle, go up through the line of stars with Antares in the middle, then curling up around will be the long and dangerous tail of the Scorpion. Scorpius is a constellation, and a constellation is simply a region of the sky. Think of it as like being a suburb. There are many suburbs in a city. As soon as someone mentions a particular one, it gives you a rough idea of where it is. And it's the same with the sky. Over thousands of years, the sky has been mapped and broken up into now 88 different sky suburbs or constellations, and Scorpius is one of the more famous. It has many good stories about it, but as you can imagine, the story that we now have may not be the same as it was thousands of years ago. 
One that I particularly like revolves around another very famous constellation, the mighty hunter Orion. He boasted that he could kill any animal on the planet. This displeased Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, so she created the giant scorpion, Scorpius, to kill him. So epic was the battle that even Zeus himself, king of the gods, stopped what he was doing and watched the fight. Ultimately, Orion was killed by the scorpion, and Zeus placed the scorpion in the sky for all of us to see. But Artemis took pity on Orion and placed his body in the sky as well, but on directly the opposite side of the sky, so that the two would never fight again. This very simple stick figure of a scorpion has a wonderful story behind it. When you've been able to see the full constellation of Scorpius, if you have a pair of binoculars or a small telescope, scan around the tail region. There are some nice objects there, including some lovely clusters of baby stars called M6, the butterfly cluster, and M7. They're simply the sixth and seventh object in a catalogue developed by a man whose name began with M. It was done quite some time ago, but we still use it. And these are rather pretty groups of young stars. Once you've done that, go a little bit higher, but you need to have the printable map because the next group of stars is rather hard to see. What you're looking for is half man, half horse, with a bow and arrow. Can you see it? I'll give you five seconds. Found it? I don't think so. It's nearly impossible. If you can see a half man, half horse with a bow and arrow, you're doing very well. Or perhaps you've been shown before, because it looks much more like an old-fashioned teapot. Yes, that's right. Those of you out there with the birthday star sign of Sagittarius, you're now a teapot. Unofficially, of course. This group of stars is fairly important to look at because it marks the centre of the Milky Way galaxy. If you can get away from the bright city lights and there's no moon and you look up at this time of year, you should be able to see a glorious view of Via Lactea by milk, our galaxy, the Milky Way. It's breathtaking. It's beautiful. And away from the bright lights, September is a wonderful time to look up and enjoy it. Try to find the teapot, because if you do find it, and in particular the spout, roughly 26,000 light years away in that direction is the heart of our galaxy and an object called Sagittarius A star. It is a massive black hole, roughly 4 million times the mass of the sun. NASA's Swift Space Telescope has been observing it, and in 2014 it gave astronomers enough data to work out that it's roughly 44 million kilometres in diameter. Black holes are rather bizarre objects. At the centre of the black hole, there is something called a singularity, a point, a mathematical point with infinite density. Oh dear, that makes my head hurt. Around that singularity, there is a, a sphere, a sphere of influence called the event horizon. 
And that event horizon is the part with a diameter of 44 million uh, kilometres. Travel over the event horizon and, uh-oh, it's not good times ahead. In fact, we call it spaghettification, ripped apart atom by atom. But we don't know for sure what happens once you go over that because you leave the observable universe. Let's move along from Sagittarius and start to head down toward the east. You might have to actually turn around a bit so that you're now facing the east. The next constellation down is the first of the water signs. It's a fairly faint group of stars. What I want you to look for is a group of stars that look a bit like a triangle that's been bent. Technically, I suppose, that makes it a quadrilateral. And what you're looking for is Capricornus, half goat, half fish. When was the last time you bumped into an animal that was half goat, half fish? No, not likely, is it? Again, it relates to having an interesting story to help memorise the positions of the stars. People have been doing this for thousands of years, dot-to-dot pictures. It's a very useful way of remembering things. I should point out that not all cultures do dot-to-dot pictures. The indigenous people of Australia have often used just a single point, a single star, to tell a story. But at the moment, we're looking at Capricornus, half-goat, half fish. The story goes that the gods were having effectively a picnic when suddenly the earth cracked open and the demon Typhon came out. Typhon attacked Zeus, king of the gods. The goat Pan did the only obvious thing that he could at seeing such a fight. He panicked, which is where we get the word from and thought to himself, I'm out of here. So he started to change from his goat form into a fish to swim to safety. He got halfway through the transformation and thought, Zeus is the boss, I'd better go back and help. He played a shrill note on his pan pipes, which distracted Typhon long enough for Zeus to gain the upper hand and scare him off with a thunderbolt. As a reward for his assistance, Zeus placed Pan as he was in the sky as a half-goat, half-fish. Amazing imagination, and I just love it. An interesting thing to note about this particular constellation as well is that it was this part of the sky on September 23rd, 1846, that the planet Neptune was discovered by the German astronomer Johann Gall. The planets, or wanderers as we used to call them, stick to a line across the sky called the ecliptic. You'll never find the planets, the sun or the moon, down near the southern cross or near the big bear, Ursa Major, in the northern sky. They will always stick very close, not necessarily on, but close to the ecliptic. No wonder that the planet Neptune was found in this part of the sky, as it passes right through Capricornus. As we leave Capricornus, I want you to go down just a little bit more. This constellation is also very hard to see, but once it's been shown to you, I think it's not that hard. All you're looking for are the shoulders, the jug, 
and the line of water flowing from the zodiac constellation of Aquarius the water carrier. He was the most handsome youth ever and was carried from the earth up to Mount Olympus by Aquila the eagle where he became the water bearer. I take it back. It's actually pretty hard to see. But from Aquarius, there is a line of stars that seems to meander across the sky to a bright star that you can see about 30 degrees. So that's one hand span and one clenched fist above the eastern horizon. It's a relatively bright star. Guess what? It's another one of our royal stars. It is Fomalo, the mouth of the southern fish or Pisces astrinus. And long ago, Fomalo used to mark the position of the winter solstice as seen from the northern hemisphere. It is the sun's most southerly position. But remember, because we're talking about this as a royal star, this was thousands of years ago, and it's no longer the marker. That point has moved on because of the Earth's precession of the equinoxes. Everything has rotated through the sky. Fomalo is a fairly young star. It's only about 400 million years old and about 25 light years away. At twice the size of the sun, it's pretty big. After you've been able to see Fomalo, by the way, the rest of the constellation to me looks a bit like a paisley swirl with the brighter star at the bottom of it as we're looking at it right now. What I want you to do is turn to your left that means we're going toward the north. It's pretty hard to see, but we're going to go past the constellation of Pegasus, which will look like a bit of a big square, though it's very low at this point in time. We go a little bit further toward the north, past another group of stars that looks like a large faint cross. You'd need a perfectly clear view toward the north to see this one. It is the constellation of Cygnus the Swan, the home of the first black hole ever found. And it's called Cygnus X1. Go a little bit past that and what you're looking for is the fifth brightest star in the night sky. It's only about 18 to 20 degrees above the horizon. Remember, as we said before, that's roughly one outstretched hand, pinky to thumb tip above the horizon. You're looking for the fifth brightest star in the night sky, Vega. Again, like Fomalo, it's only about 25 light years away and about twice the mass of the sun. It's less than 500 million years old, so that's a young star. But the cool part is, 12,000 years ago, it was indeed the North Polar Star. It seems to me that many people think the stars never move, but they do. They do move and the patterns change over very, very long periods of time. The Earth also wobbles, as I've mentioned. 12,000 years ago, Vega was the polar star, and in roughly another 14,000 years, it will be the polar star again. But don't worry about waiting for that one. I love looking at this star, the fifth brightest star called Vega. By the way, for science fiction buffs, it was the destination star for the fabulous 1956 movie Forbidden Planet. 
If you go from Vega at roughly 18 degrees above the northern horizon up to about 35 degrees, that's one handspan with fingers wide open, one clenched fist, and then half a fist. Got that? Good. If you can do that, you will see another fairly bright star. This is Altair, Eye of the Eagle. That was the eagle that carried Aquarius up to become the water bearer. Vega and Altair. Two bright stars separated by the Milky Way, the river in the sky. Throughout Asia, on the 7th of July, legend says that birds come together and build a bridge over the Milky Way so the two can be together for just one day. Oddly, nothing actually happens in the sky, but I love this story. And in Japan, the girl Vega is Orihime, meaning princess, and the boy is Hikoboshi. In China, it's Zhenyu and Nyulan. My pronunciation, however, may be off somewhat, so please forgive me there. This story is also quite famous in Vietnam and Korea. The sky really is a multicultural delight. Continue now to turn to your left, past where we started. To the southwest, we're looking for a second centaur, half man, half horse. And this one's name is Chiron. He was a wonderful teacher. According to mythology from long, long ago, he was the tutor to Achilles, Hercules and Jason. What we're looking for is a fairly bright star that makes up one of his front feet. Its altitude is about 45 degrees above the horizon. How do we do that? Ah, of course. Two handspans, pinky to thumb, that's about 40 degrees, then half a clenched fist up. If you can see one bright star there, you've nailed it. That's Alpha Centauri. It's the closest star to us after the sun and the third brightest star in the night sky. The interesting thing about this star, Alpha Centauri, is that it's a visual binary, which means that if you have a small telescope or even a really good pair of binoculars, this one star looks like two snuggled up against each other. In reality, they're not. The distance between them varies enormously. They're in a dance, a dance that takes roughly 80 years for them to go around each other once. At their closest, they're roughly the distance from the Sun to the planet Uranus. At their most distant, they're nearly double that from the Sun to Neptune. One of them is a little bit bigger than the Sun and the other one a little bit smaller. But it's a little more complicated than just being a binary star because there is a third star in the system. The third star is a small red dwarf going around the other two, going around one another. The third star comes closer to us than any other star apart from the Sun, and it's called Proxima Centauri. It's at a distance of 4.24 light years. Recently, in the search for exoplanets, a small planet just a little bit bigger than the Earth has been detected in orbit around Proxima Centauri. 
It takes 11 days to go around once, so it's very close to the parent star. But because it's not as big or as hot as the Sun, that actually puts this planet, called Proxima b, into what's called the Goldilocks zone. Theoretically, it means that liquid water may exist on this planet. Stay tuned, because I'm sure over the next few years there will be more studies and information released about this intriguing new and close exoplanet. Just below Alpha Centauri is the second brightest star in the constellation of the Centaur, so it's called Beta Centauri. It represents another of the front feet of the half-man, half-horse. From there, there's a line of stars that again you'll need to use the map to see that wraps around indeed the smallest of all 88 constellations, and that is the Southern Cross. It's getting a bit low in the southwest at this stage and a bit hard to see. Keep going around to your left, past due south, into the southeast. You'll see the tenth brightest star in the night sky. That is Achenar, the brightest star in the constellation of Eridanus, the river. It's an amazing constellation because it winds its way across so much of the night sky. It's an interesting star too, at about 140 light years away. It's seven times the mass of the sun, but 3,000 times brighter. It's very, very bright. But because of the distance, it fades to being about the tenth brightest at night as we see it. It's also intriguing because it spins so quickly, its equatorial diameter is about 56% wider than its polar. That makes it one of the flattest stars we've ever seen. When we look up and see stars, we mostly see single points of light scattered here and there. But that is not the reality. The majority of stars come in groups of two or more, and they are as close to a mortal as we can imagine. Our galaxy, and indeed our universe, is a very unusual and beautiful place. Special events for September 2016, and let's start with the moon. New moon is on Thursday the 1st at 7.03pm. First quarter moon will be on Friday the 9th at 9.49pm. Full moon is on Saturday the 17th at 5.05am, and last quarter moon on Friday the 23rd at 7.56pm. The spring equinox will occur on Friday the 23rd at 12.21am. This is simply when we see the Sun move from the Northern Hemisphere and cross the celestial equator into the Southern Hemisphere, which for us signals the start of spring. In the Northern Hemisphere, however, it's the autumnal equinox. The Sun will rise due east and set almost due west. Sunset at the start of the month is at 5.37pm and by the end of the month it's at 5.57pm, so a 20 minute difference. Sunrise at the start of the month is at 6.14am and by the end of the month it's 5.34am, so a 40 minute difference. Three planets, Mercury, 
Jupiter and Venus will be huddled in the west immediately after sunset at the start of the month in Virgo, but very hard to see unless you have a perfect view to the west and a clear sky. Mercury will be lost by the end of the first week and Jupiter by the second. On the third, the young moon is just below Venus. On the eighth, the moon will be close to Spica, the brightest star in Virgo. Mars and Saturn are close to each other, with Mars moving from Scorpius into Ophiuchus, then Sagittarius. On the 8th, the Moon is close to Saturn, and on the 9th, close to reddish Mars. Of course, with all five planets visible in the evening sky, none will be seen in the morning. You can find our monthly Sky Guide podcasts on iTunes. If you want more detailed sky maps sunrise and sunset times, the moon and tidal times, and a whole lot more, we recommend that you buy the book The Australasian Sky Guide by Dr. Nick Lom. It's available from Sydney Observatory and the Powerhouse Museum websites and shops. It's only $16.95 if you come to our venues, but a little bit more with postage and handling if you order online. Our website at www.maz.museum has a galaxy of information about astronomy and visiting us at Sydney Observatory. How to use telescopes, see a program in our space theatre and visit our Sydney planetarium. For the very most up-to-date information, why not engage with us via Facebook? Go to facebook.com forward slash Sydney Observatory, or you can follow us on our Twitter account at Sydney Obs. My name's Geoffrey Wyatt, I'm one of the team here at Sydney Observatory and the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences. I do hope you've enjoyed this tour of what's visible in the southern sky for the month of September 2016.